Welcome to Hidden Headlines, Faith, Family, Freedom. This is the special climate change edition. In this episode, you will gain answers to these questions. Is CO2 a pollutant? How much CO2 is actually in the atmosphere? Is there more CO2 in the atmosphere now than any time before? And does CO2 alter the climate? This is an important episode that I hope you will share. Hi, everybody. I'm Brian Sussman. Ever since Al Gore's movie, An Inconvenient Truth, came out in 2006, we've had an entire generation, the millennials, growing up believing that there's a climate emergency being caused by the burning of fossil fuels. Thus, is it no surprise that our nation's millennial congresswoman, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, a.k.a. AOC, is a true believer that humankind is the enemy of the atmosphere? I mean, think about this. She's 29. Al Gore's movie, An Inconvenient Truth, came out in 2006 when she was 16. So ever since she was old enough to drive, she's been brainwashed to believe that cars and fossil fuels are bad. Thus, she shouts, if we don't do something to curtail CO2 emissions, then life on planet Earth is doomed in 12 years. Let me say from the beginning, CO2 is not a pollutant. It is a life-producing atmospheric source. Now, let me give you my background for those of you listening to this podcast who may not know me from my radio show in San Francisco or from my books, Climate Gate and Eco-Tyranny. I began my career in media, first in radio, but then moved to television after graduating from the University of Missouri, which has, of course, one of the great broadcast journalism schools of all time, was working in television, had an opportunity one night to do the weather on the TV news. I did it. I loved it. My boss liked it so much that he made me the new weather guy. And right away, I realized if I want to make a great career out of this, I really need to go back to school and get a meteorology degree. And so that's what I did. And I attended uh, some fine schools along the way. San Jose State University has a great meteorology school, as does Mississippi State University. So that's what I did, and I got the sheepskin. The bottom line is, I wrote this book, Climate Gate, in 2010, not realizing that it was going to become an overnight bestseller. That book was followed up in 2012 with Ecotarity. The full titles of each book, Climategate, a Veteran Meteorologist Exposes the Global Warming Scam, and Ecotarity, How the Left's Green Agenda Will Dismantle America. In both of these books, I talk a lot about Al Gore. In fact, in Climategate, I go through Al Gore's book pretty much scene by scene and show you how he is absolutely wrong on most things. I'm going to be reading a little bit and then opining at the same time from my book, Climate Gate. I'm going to the fourth chapter entitled Designer Pollutant. Now, again, this is 2010. Al Gore was making the rounds back then. We had a certain president in the White House named Barack Obama. His Environmental Protection Agency was on a tear. They were out to completely crush the fossil fuel industry in America because they were telling everyone, that carbon dioxide was indeed a pollutant. So let's, let's talk about this. Let's talk about this in no uncertain detail. 
You may want to take some notes along the way. Uh, by the way, the book Climate Gate is still available in print. You can go to, for example, Amazon.com, and I know that there are a few copies uh, available here, there, and everywhere. But, well, maybe I should say here and there because it's certainly not everywhere any longer. I know it's out of print. But let's talk about life-giving carbon dioxide. I'm looking at page 65 from my book. Like water and oxygen, there is a finite amount, yet an infinite supply of carbon dioxide. In other words, we're not losing any to outer space, nor is any being added from deliveries by extraterrestrials. Uh, the CO2 that is here is here, and it's not going away. However, it will be stored in different places. Observe the wonderful symbiotic relationship with humans, animals, and plants. Humans and the various species of animals breathe in oxygen produced by plants. The wondrous transformation then materializes in our lungs, causing us to exhale CO2, which the plants then breathe. It's a wonderful thing. Just as fascinating is the relationship that plants have with the planet's various other sources of CO2. For example, decomposing vegetation, the carcasses of dead animals, forest fires, smoldering peat bogs, volcanoes, plowed soil, weathering rocks, human utilization of fossil fuels, and even termites and crustacean shells all exude carbon dioxide beneficial to the plant kingdom. It's a wonderful thing, friends. It's just amazing how this works. And the more carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, the more content the plants become. Just ask anyone who's worked at a greenhouse. In fact, that is a portion of the carbon dioxide debate that no one bothers to address. The plant kingdom would abound if carbon dioxide levels were to increase in the global atmosphere. Now, there's been some unbelievable research on this by Michigan State University and its professor emeritus of horticulture, Sylvan Whitwer. This research indicates that with a tripling of CO2, a tripling of CO2, three times as much CO2 in the atmosphere as we presently have, if we were to have that roses, carnations, chrysanthemums, well, they all experience earlier maturity, according to his work. They have longer stems. They have larger, longer-lasting, more colorful flowers. And they have yields increasing up to 15%. Likewise, at, the, at, the, at Michigan State University, they've discovered that rice and wheat and barley and oats and rye perform yield increases ranging to 64% with the tripling of the CO2. Potatoes and sweet potatoes produce as much as 75% more. Legumes, including peas, beans, soybeans, show increases to 46%. And the effects of carbon dioxide on trees, which cover, by the way, one-third of the Earth's landmass, may be even more dramatic than all of that. According to Michigan State's Forestry Department, trees have been raised to maturity in months instead of years when the seedlings were raised in a tripled CO2 environment. This is all on the record research. So how could an element so essential to life 
be vilified as evil? It's really amazing. Because in the atmosphere, <laughs> when you look at it, and I'm going to give you uh, an analogy here that I just absolutely relish, but there is so little CO2 in the atmosphere. It's, well, listen to this. If you were to break down the gases in our atmosphere, nitrogen's at 78.1%, oxygen, 20.9%, water vapor, 0.4%, Argon, 0.9%. Carbon dioxide, 0.038%. And by the way, unlike nitrogen and oxygen, carbon dioxide is a variable gas. So as we look through research that has been conducted, uh, digging through layers of the earth, uh, we've been able to determine that over time, there have been much greater amounts of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, and at other times, less. Carbon dioxide accounts for a scant 38 thousandths of a percent of our planet's atmosphere. 38 thousandths of a percent. It's a variable gas. Because like water vapor, it's historically fluctuated. And by the way, what percentage of this minuscule amount of CO2 is produced by the activities of man, you know, me and you, humankind, if you will, including the utilization of fossil fuels? Well, according to a thorough analysis by the Carbon Dioxide Information Analysis Center, a research wing of the Department of Energy, about 3.2%. So in other words... We have 0.038% of our atmosphere is carbon dioxide, and only 3% of that is caused by humankind. That's a critical fact. So little carbon dioxide to begin with, and only 3% is caused or created, if you will, by the activity of humankind. By the way, how much has CO2 increased in the atmosphere over the past 150 years? Approximately 35%. So 150 years, the Industrial Revolution, and it's only increased 35%. And by the way, that increase is clearly within the Earth's historical norms. Now, here's the analogy I just love. Th this is from the must-read eco-thriller, State of Fear by the late Michael Crichton. And Michael Crichton creates a brilliant visual to assist us in wrapping our minds around the components of the Earth's atmosphere. I know you'll love this. So it's page 387 of the paperback version of the book. He likens the atmosphere to a football field. The goal line to the 78 yard, from the goal line to the 78 yard line the goal line to the 78-yard line. If you're just looking at the field from one goal line, 100 yards away is the other goal line, right? That's the football field. From the goal line to the 78-yard line contains nothing but nitrogen. Oxygen fills the next 21 yards, stretching us to the 99-yard line. The final yard, except for about two and a half inches, is argon. It's a wonderfully mysterious inert gas useful for putting out electrical fires. <laughs> About half of the remaining inches 
are crammed with a variety of minor but essential gases. And then the last 1.37 inches, the last 1.37 inches on this 100-yard football field, which represents our atmosphere, is carbon dioxide. The equivalent of one inch out of a 100-yard field. So if you were in the stands looking down on the action during the game, you would need some pretty big binoculars. I mean, really, really great binoculars to see the width of that line. And by the way, the most important point, how much of that last inch is contributed to human activities? The equivalent of a line as thin as a dime standing on its edge. So, with that analogy in mind, are you still worried about the dangers of CO2? Me neither. That's why I'm doing this podcast. <laughs> That's why I wrote the book Climategate and Ecotarity. Are you beginning to understand global warming is a manufactured crisis? The likes of which might actually make the ghost of Karl Marx salute to its success because at the end of the day, Karl Marx was one who believed the environment should be used. The environment should be used to put forward his socialist ideology. So that is CO2. But let's continue. Let's talk about the greenhouse effect. The greenhouse effect. Because we're told greenhouse gases. Oh my gosh, it's going to warm the atmosphere. And then in 12 years, according to AOC, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, we're all going to die. The greenhouse effect is aptly named. It was first coined by scientists in the 1800s. It describes the way crucial gases in our atmosphere absorb heat from the sun, thus maintaining an environment appropriate for human habitation. Scientists back in the 1800s used the term, it was in a favorable way. It wasn't a negative the way it's used nowadays. Uh, they created a term that conjured relatable imagery of the warmth experienced in a flower or vegetable gar uh, greenhouse. A greenhouse, with its glass walls and roof, allows the sun's heating rays to shine through and enter the otherwise sheltered environment, warming it nicely in comparison to conditions outside the glass. In addition, the greenhouse traps an entire day's worth of warmth, preventing the heated air from completely radiating back into outer space at night. And then when soil is brought into the greenhouse and seeds are sown and irrigation is applied, other factors begin to dramatically warm this artificial environment. The water from the irrigation begins to evaporate, creating vapor and increasing the humidity to further warm the surroundings. And depending on where you reside, you may be well acquainted with the effects of humidity. I'm out here in California. We don't have a lot of it. Some of you are listening from the South or the Midwest or the Eastern United States. On a humid summer day, you can't move about outdoors without beads of perspiration breaking out on your brow, right? And at night, the water vapor-laden air seems heavy. And the temperature has a difficult time dropping to comfortable sleeping levels. This is because humid air tends to retain its temperature. You are experiencing the greenhouse effect working in the microclimate level. In this case, the region of the country in which you live. Now, on the macroclimate level, that's, that's the really, really big picture. Without the greenhouse effect, 
the earth would be a ball of ice void of life. We need the greenhouse effect. It's essential to our life on planet Earth. Otherwise, all of that heat from the day would evaporate into outer space at night. We are experiencing the greenhouse effect on our planet. And it's interesting, isn't it? This life-dependent atmospheric factor has become the environmentalist paramount enemy. They loathe carbon dioxide. We couldn't live without it. They've caused an entire generation to fear the greenhouse effect. We can't live without it. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Now, following, it's interesting because following water vapor, the remaining 5% of the greenhouse gases are in order. Carbon dioxide, methane, nitrous oxide, ozone, and carbon monoxide. However, now stay with me here. It must be noted that methane is 21 times more potent than CO2 when it comes to the greenhouse effect. So that methane, that methane is a very, very potent gas. And nitrous oxide is 310 times more capable of retaining the sun's heat than carbon dioxide. So it too is incredibly potent. Carbon dioxide is actually a puny player in the greenhouse game. And yet it is the one that is the most vilified by the environmentalists. They've made you believe that it's, it's our enemy. Now, what's really interesting, let's just continue this because I, I'm hoping that it's going to be enlightening to you. The Department of Energy, pre-Trump, this was during the Obama years, and other government climatologists chose to ignore the mighty greenhouse effect of water vapor for the sake of the following proposition. So let's eliminate it from the equation and focus only on the remaining 5% of greenhouse gases. Because again, water vapor is the primary greenhouse gas on the planet. And we need the water vapor, but that's too hard to explain to folks, so they just don't want you to think about it at all. Let's focus on the remaining 5% of these greenhouse gases that I just talked about. That would be, of course, in order CO2, methane, nitrous oxide, ozone, and carbon monoxide. Human contribution of carbon dioxide in our atmosphere is realized primarily through the burning of fossil fuels, but but it's also through processes like manufacturing cement, farming, plowing a field exposes microscopic organisms in the soil, causing carbon-laden organisms to die, thus they release CO2. Accounting for the individual concentrations and potencies of the other greenhouse gases. Again, we're not talking about water vapor, just those 5% of gases that I mentioned. The contribution of CO2 emissions created by human activity accounts for only 2.32% of the Earth's greenhouse effect. All of the activities of humankind... When you look at the Earth's greenhouse effect, humankind, just a smidgen over 2% in terms of humankind's contribution. Now, if you want to consider water vapor into the math, 
then the anthropogenic or human-caused carbon dioxide footprint is reduced to a mere 0.116% of the greenhouse effect. Without a calculator, your brain can't even think that small. So when you look at all the greenhouse gases in the atmosphere, the human carbon footprint, if you will, is 0.116%. So let me summarize, because we've covered a lot of ground here, and I know that your brain is probably swirling now with numbers, and you're saying, I wish you would have taken some notes. Well, you can always stop and rewind. But let me, let me summarize. First, carbon dioxide comprises 0.038% of the Earth's atmosphere. Carbon dioxide comprises 0.038% of the Earth's atmosphere, and of that amount, a mere 3% is generated by humankind. Next, CO2 emissions created by human activity. You look at all the CO2 emissions created by human activity, it accounts for only 0.116% of the greenhouse effect. Let me give you another one. In the last 150 years, by the way, that's roughly the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, the amount of carbon dioxide has increased 35%. That's all. And that is well within historical norms. So, my friends, the world is being hoodwinked. There is no planetary emergency caused by the abundance of carbon dioxide. And even if anthropogenic CO2 was a life-threatening issue, the Earth has sufficient mechanisms in place to accommodate. Now, what mechanisms am I talking about? Well, let's discuss that for a moment here on Hidden Headlines. The winter snow falls upon the mountaintops. It melts in the spring, trickles into the stream, meanders into a river, eventually fills a larger body of water such as a lake, a bay, or an ocean. Along the way, some of this water seeps deep, deeply into underground aquifers, only to be released, in some cases decades later, via a spring or a geyser. In addition, each day a fraction of the water atop the Earth's surface is warmed by the sun's rays evaporates and is caught up in the sky. Once airborne, this water vapor mixes with the general atmosphere and eventually cools. The atmosphere's cooling forces force the water vapor to condense into droplets, which gather together, eventually forming a beautiful cloud. The cloud conjoins with others and grows and eventually reaches critical mass, creating a destabilization, followed by precipitation, thus returning the water back to Earth in liquid drops, or flakes of snow, or ice pellets, or hail. I just described to you the Earth's water cycle. You probably remember this from grade school. The water cycle. Life on planet Earth can't exist without it. And there will never be more or less water in the system because this cycle, well, it's, it's all right here. And because of this cycle, water is a resource that is finite and, as I mentioned, yet infinite. It's, it's a zero-sum game. CO2 works the exact same way, with one exception. The CO2 circuit requires a bit more time to complete. But as I've said a couple of times now, CO2 is a resource that's finite, yet infinite. 
So when a major volcano blows its lid on the Pacific Rim, a lightning-induced fire rages in the Rockies, or an Indonesian peat bog eternally smolders, huge amounts of long-stored CO2 are naturally released into the atmosphere. The carbon dioxide banked in weathering rocks, decaying coral, decomposing plants, is also constantly meandering through the cycle. Same thing with the carbon cached in fossil fuels. Upon consumption, it too is released into the atmosphere where it's temporarily held and finally absorbed by a a variety of repositories or what we refer to as sinks. About these sinks, about these sinks, the most obvious is the atmosphere itself where best we can tell the level of carbon dioxide generally fluctuates between 0.03 and 0.04%. Now, the largest includes all the bodies of water. I mean, 71% of the Earth's surface is water. And that contains vast stores of dissolved CO2. Dissolved carbon dioxide, by the way, is used by snails and shellfish and coral for the formation of their wonderfully hard exoskeletons. The ocean's floor is so rich in sedimentary limestone, that's a petrified uh, modification of CO2, also known as calcium carbonate. The same same stuff, by the way, you might take to ease a tummy ache or heartburn. A major sink often overlooked by the layperson includes all the CO2 that's been petrified over time in all the rocks on the planet. They're all filled with CO2. And a more obvious sink includes the organic compounds, the carbon compounds found in, in all things both alive and dead. The dead organic matter includes ancient peat moss deposits, coal seams, natural gas, petroleum reserves, as well as newly fallen autumn leaves, recently felled trees, even animal and human corpses. Though the process of decay, well, I should say through the process of decay, the carbon stored in all these organic substances is released back into the air as an inorganic carbon dioxide to be reworked into the carbon cycle. Now, I continue here, and again, I'm reading from my book, Climate Gate. I'm on page 72. There's also a mystery at play in the carbon cycle, a mystery that Marxist scientists loathe because they prefer to feign supreme knowledge. When an agitation occurs within the carbon cycle, for example, a volcano, natural mechanisms seem to maintain the cycle's equilibrium. This is a mystery to scientists. This was noted when Mount Pinatubo erupted in 1991. I recall the time I was working in television and I showed my television audience the enormous ash plume as witnessed from satellites during that blast. A cloud of particulates eventually covered much of the globe. Over the next two years, the Earth's average temperature dropped by a half degree Fahrenheit. It's theorized that the particulates ejected into the atmosphere by Pinatubo were able to partially block the sun's radiation and thus decrease the global temperature. This mysterious conundrum for scientists, or maybe I should say the mysterious conundrum for scientists, is that during this same two-year period, where the temperature dropped by a half degree Fahrenheit, amounts of atmospheric carbon dioxide also notably decreased globally. 
So I asked the question in my book, could it be that the massive amounts of CO2 spewed into the sky by one of the most powerful volcanoes in our lifetime was being offset by some natural mechanism like the ocean? Advocates of human-caused global warming are quick to emphatically say no, because even if they say maybe, well, that would blow their anthropogenic global warming theory. I should also just mention, if you look back over time, it's, it's interesting. Paleoclimate researchers, these are people who do research way, way back. They go back into that, they go back into that way back machine every day. They're quick to show a link illustrating that in the Eocene period, which was 50 million years ago, CO2 was likely up to six times higher than today. In the Crustaceous period, 90 million years ago, it was perhaps as much as seven times higher today. And in the aptly named Carboniferous period, 340 million years ago, Carbon dioxide was thought to be nearly 12 times higher than current levels. So many theorize, and I would be amongst these, the dinosaurs were able to grow to such enormous sizes because of the indescribable abundance of CO2-fed foliage and the overall CO2-laden atmospheric conditions compared to the present era. I mean, you cannot blame those incredibly high CO2 numbers back in the day on the SUV. (laughs) Maybe you could blame it on dinosaur flatulence, but quite frankly, we'll never know. So those are some comments on CO2. It's not a pollutant, my friends. It's a life-giving source. And I would say, because again, hidden headlines, faith, family, freedom— I would say it's a wonderful, wonderful element of our atmosphere given to us by God. And that's Hidden Headlines. Thanks for joining me, my friends. Again, the books Climate Gates as well as Eco-Tyranny. You can purchase a copy online, Amazon.com. Follow me on Facebook, Brian Sussman Show. Twitter, Brian underscore Sussman. If you'd like to email me, just go to my website, BrianSussman.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Until next time, Brian Sussman, signing off.